0: Aloha and welcome to my messy little life podcast. This is episode 22. You can do anything. During winter break, I was able to sit in on one of my son's art therapy sessions on Zoom. One of the very first things I did after my husband died was get help. We started with one therapist each, play therapy for him and cognitive behavioral therapy for me. We added on from there. We added a somatic therapist, a support group for solo moms, a tapping coach, and a life coaching program for widowed moms for me. And we added a kid's mindfulness therapy group and art therapy for him. This is what I affectionately refer to as our team of experts. We are so special. It takes this many people to help us. During his art therapy session, we were given an assignment to do together. We had to make a short list of reasons we love each other. We then had to sit facing each other, taking turns saying, I love you because, and fill in the blank. I told him I love him because he's kind. I love him because he's creative. I love him because he has a great sense of humor. I figured he would say that he loved me because I feed him and buy him stuff. Or that he loves me because I'm his mom and he has no choice. Kids don't care. They tell it like it is. But here's what he said. I love you because you teach me things I would not learn in school. I love you because you heal me when I'm sick. I love you because you never give up. And then he hit me with this. I love you because you can do anything. And all I could think was fuck yes. Total validation. And every awful, challenging, terrible thing I've been through came down to this. It's one thing to be told you're nice or you're pretty or whatever. But to actually be seen by someone who knows what you've been through was everything. This is not a toddler who just looks up to me because I'm his mom. This is not a little kid who thinks I'm a superhero because he has nothing else to compare me to. This is my big boy who has been through hell and back with me and has seen me overcome so much shit. I once had a sprained ankle for five months because I had a toddler that I had to keep running after to keep from heading straight into the street. When I was 14, I had an ovarian cyst that burst. I had a C-section with my son. They cut me open, pulled a human being out of my body, and then they burned my flesh to seamlessly put me back together. When I lived on Maui, I injured my back and I couldn't sit down for six months. I could stand for a short period of time, but mostly I could just lie in bed on muscle relaxers that made me feel like I was drooling on myself and just taking up space. When I first moved out of my dad's house and lived with a handful of different roommates, I was finally able to get my own place. It was an adorable studio in a tiny Spanish-style building made up of only three other units. One night, or at 4.31 a.m. to be exact, I woke up to what I thought was someone breaking in. There was a commotion, but it was coming from underground. I grabbed the baseball bat that I slept with next to my bed, but then I realized, as I started to shake off sleep, that it was an earthquake. What I despise about earthquakes is the same thing I despise about anxiety. It starts as a low, quiet rumble beneath the surface and just keeps building and building. You try to ignore it and hope that it'll just pass, but it slowly becomes louder and more noticeable until it finally clicks in your head that this is serious. Stuff starts falling off shelves Asphalt and concrete start to crack, and the whole time, as you're paralyzed with fear, all you can think of is how much bigger is this thing going to get? So that morning, on January 17th, 1994, there was no low rumbling slowly starting to build, just violent shaking coming from underneath the earth, I watched my floor lamp swaying from side to side. I could hear glass shattering through the window that I left open just a crack. I started praying for probably the first time in my life, begging actually for it to stop. It never occurred to me to get out. I was frozen there on my bed. I was sure that I wasn't going to survive. It went on for what felt like forever. And then finally, it stopped. When I was finally able to move, I took a quick inventory and I remember thinking how lucky I had been. My kitchen cabinets snapped shut, not allowing the dishes to come flying out. My TV stand and refrigerator were both on wheels so that they rolled away from the walls instead of toppling over and being knocked to the ground. I owned so little and had such a limited amount of space. There wasn't a whole lot of damage to be had. But when I walked outside, it was a whole different story. Buildings were on fire. Windows were broken out. Sirens were blaring and cars were speeding and running through red lights. It was like the apocalypse. I threw a few things into a bag and headed a few blocks away to my dad's house. I figured I could never sleep alone again. Businesses and apartment buildings were destroyed. Moving trucks lined the streets. We were only about 20 minutes from the epicenter. It measured 6.7 on the Richter scale and was only 10 to 20 seconds long. For weeks after, every single time I would sit down to relax there would be yet another 5.0 aftershock. One day, also in my early 20s, I went shopping at Miller's Outpost with my sister at a strip mall in some shitty part of the valley. What I realized now that I didn't even think about then was that the retail store had a deep parking lot and was set way back from the boulevard and was located directly next to an alley, Not good. As I was standing there, waiting for her to look through a clothing rack before we could move on to the 501 jeans, I noticed two guys walking along the storefront. I'm not sure why they caught my eye, but as they entered the store, I noticed they had pantyhose pulled over their faces. The first one walked over to the register, while the second one pulled something out of his backpack and started walking towards us. It was a sawed-off shotgun. I was terrified that my sister, who suffers from panic disorder, would get us killed by fainting instead of cooperating. As the man, probably more like a boy, walked toward us, I purposely looked away so I wouldn't be able to identify him. He told us to get down, and we both instinctively threw our purses far away from us and threw ourselves face first down on the ground with our hands up where they could see them. All I could think of was all the useless crap I had in my purse, like tampons and handfuls of loose change. The man behind the register was unimaginably calm, doing what he was told, and for a minute, I thought maybe, just maybe, it would all be over soon. Until the employee asked one too many questions. And the guy with the gun raised his voice and yelled, just give me the money before I blow your fucking head off. And that's when I was positive we were going to die. I remember seeing an elderly couple shopping when we entered the store, and I was worried for them. At some point, the money must have been handed over and the thieves must have left the store, but we had no way of knowing that. Our faces were pressed to the floor and I could actually feel my heart beating against it. Finally, one of the employees came running from the back of the store announcing that they were gone. They might have said something about sticking around to talk to the police, but I didn't hear them. I was in pure flight mode. I remember us picking up our purses, grabbing each other by the hand, and making a beeline toward the front door. Just before we exited, we both paused for a brief moment. I wondered if we were in more danger outside or inside the store. And then we just bailed. We ran to my car and jumped in. I peeled out and jumped the curb into the flow of traffic. My sister, who had quit smoking years before, grabbed two cigarettes from my pack, lit them both and handed me one. We were nervous laughing and in complete shock at what just happened, realizing that we were probably not supposed to leave. Then of course, there was the time three years ago that I called the police and asked them to perform a welfare check on my husband. I knew that something was wrong. Even though he had drifted so far away from me, we were still connected. And I knew even before I was told. I gave them all of my information and hung up the phone and began to wait. The wait was longer than the robbery and much longer than the earthquake. And what happened as a result of that call will stay with me the longest. When I finally received a call back, it was confirmed that he was gone. Not from an accidental overdose, like I had imagined. Not from an accident of any other kind, but from suicide. It was unfathomable. There have been many times along this journey that I thought my mental health would never survive. But here I am. I think for me... The resistance that I have to facing big, scary feelings is the fear that I won't be able to handle it, whatever that means. The same way my anxiety is my fear that something terrible and awful and frightening will happen and I won't be able to control it. And I will lose my grip. I'll go insane. I'll start to cry and become hysterical and will never be able to stop. That I will shut down and fall into a deep depression and will no longer be able to function, that I will lose control, that I will hurt too bad, that I will break. When I heard my son say I can do anything, it made me think not only about all that I've accomplished, but it also reminded me of everything I've survived. Not only what I can do, but also what I can endure. I can do anything, as in I can get through anything. It's not only about running my house and putting food on the table, or setting and reaching goals. It's not just about conquering fifth grade math homework or scheduling and rescheduling the endless string of appointments. It's about overcoming and growing. It's about coping and fighting and healing. It's so easy to focus on failures and insecurities and flaws. The negativity bias in my brain loves to show me how everything is going wrong. When I'm running late, when I forget something, when I make a mistake. So much so that victories and accomplishments get glossed over. Celebrating them should be more of a thing and not even huge wins either. But little everyday things like being on time, or making dinner with multiple food groups, or not having a meltdown. Giving myself credit has never come naturally for me. It always felt like bragging or being stuck up, but I'm working on it. I've definitely swapped the mean girl tone of voice for a much gentler one when speaking to myself. I try to go for reassurance as opposed to utter disgust and I try to let myself off the hook once in a while. I really am doing my absolute best over here. I've also not always been great at taking a compliment. I tend to argue the validity of it or downplay it in every way. The truth is I really like who I am. I'm a good person who's compassionate and considerate and genuinely cares about other people's feelings. I go out of my way to help people and I try, with all my might, to be a good mom. And I'll take that you can do anything compliment, because I've earned it. I often joke about getting things tattooed on my body so I can remember them, like profound quotes or great advice that I keep forgetting to take. But no joke, I will actually be getting this tattooed on my body in my son's writing, so I can remind myself of what I'm capable of and instead of, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Who do you think you are? I can look at it and remember, you are amazing. You can do anything. And I love you. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow my blog at mymessylittlelife.com, And you can also follow my Messy Little Life podcast so you never miss an episode. Until next time take good care. Aloha.